Welcome to Color Me Dead. This is a true crime podcast, and we talk about murder and fuckery most foul in detail while using the darkest of humor. If you don't like words like fuck and cunt, then you probably shouldn't listen. But if you do, then join us while we fuck your feelings. Welcome back, everybody. Happy New Year. Happy fucking New Year. It is currently 2020. Yeah, it is. I don't know how I feel about that. Everybody's like, 2019 was shit. And then people last year like, 2018 was shit. 27. So can we just start off the year and be like, it's going to be shit. And then if it's good, then we're happy. Or is that the wrong attitude to have towards this? I honestly don't know. 2020 is going to fucking suck. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, we just want to wish every single one of you a very merry... A merry new year. New year. We're back. We are back with the final part of the murder of Becky Watts. This is episode 127. Before we jump into the thick of it, if you guys want to go and donate to our Patreon, please do so. You can do that through the Patreon website or check us out at ageofradio.org slash colormedead. You guys can shop the bazaar, check out other shows, listen to all of our episodes, and click that great big button What says... Money to the girls. <laughs> Send us the monies. Show and me <laughs> the money. If you're having problems with Patreon, just keep trying. They're working on it actively right now. We've sent them the error codes. I've been dealing with all that shit. So bear with us. It's it's coming. And thank you, everybody that's been dealing with it, that's been having problems, that still continue to donate. Where can they find us on the social medias? Um, well, if you'd love to find us on the social media, um, Facebook, we have the Color Me Dead podcast page, which you should just follow that right over to the Color Me Dead podcast group. Um, we are not liable or responsible for anything that's posted in there. Uh, if you guys want to check us out on Instagram, you can follow us at Color Me Dead podcast, gory underscore Nikki or Color Me Dead Angel. If you would like to be ignored on Twitter, find us at Color Me Dead pod. I try to hop on there. I try to do stuff. Life is a fucking mess when you're trying to manage everything. And so um, Twitter is like at the bottom of my scrotum pole. <laughs> I just don't get it. Like I get you miss, so you, over you fucking miss my scrotum pole. Scrotum pole. I did like it. I, I actually got a visual while I was talking and it was a, a totem pole, but the bottom was a nut sack. Um, you know why that joke is incredibly funny to me? Because one of my favorite homosex buddies told me a joke. It was Josh. Um Slosh. Slosh. Said, what do you call 10 gay guys stacked on top of each other? A scrotum pole. A scrotum pole. <laughs> I like it. See, my visual wasn't too far I know. off of the, the actual... He said that to me and I looked at him and I was like, God damn it, Josh. <laughs> why, um, why did you? Why? 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 Because, yeah, you can't un- you can't unthink that. Um, if you guys want to send us anything, you can do so at Color My Dead Podcast, P.O. Box 1610, Vernal, Utah, 84078. If you want to get some merch, you can go to colormedeadpod.threadless.com. We have all kinds of shit on there. And the sources. Um, there were many sources used. The main source for this episode and the previous two um, was a book by Darren Galsworthy, who is the father of the victim, called The Evil Within. Also, if you guys want to go and look at the case review, it's bristolsafeguarding.org. This is uh, the Bristol's 
Safeguarding Case, Becky, 2018. And I put the links in the show notes. So, so you can go. just click on it. On it and, and go read it. If you want to read the book too, I found it on Kindle. If you have like Amazon Prime mm-hmm. and you use the Kindle app or anything, it's free on there. Yeesh. We're back. Welcome back. Part number three, Becky Watts murder. Okay, so quick recap, all right? Um, we left you last time at the morgue where Becky's father, Darren, and his wife, Angie, had gone to say their final goodbyes and the arraignment hearing where all the people involved in her murder were going to be seen for the first time. Now, if you're not up to speed on events up to that part, stop what you're doing. Go back to episode 125 because I'm not recapping everything for you. That would take another whole episode. I, and there are episodes 124 and, or 125 and 126. So... Following the arraignment, Darren and Angie had had not been back to their home um, in Bristol, okay? So they'd been staying in little apartments part-time or, like, extended stay hotels. So mm-hmm. this was the first time that they'd been back in six weeks. Um, I don't even think that I could do, like, I, I've done it in the past, but having had been jostled out of their home for a murder investigation and then had been they'd been living in a a variety of like small hotels and apartments until all of the evidence collection and the investigation had been completed that has got to be incredibly difficult and especially when you're a person who is chronically ill right to not be home in the comforts of your own home that's Mm got to be fucking stressful like that's got to compound I know it does I know it does you're chronically ill I'm chronically ill my mother has MS like I know what kind of headache that is well it's stupid things for me like my bed is soft and i have my anxiety blanket i have the right pillow when i go out of town i take the blanket and the pillow but the bed is not fucking soft right and so it's not the same i I would just like to point out that every time that we stay at hotel monaco i expect their beds to be better and they're they're not not. i just want to point that out kimpton be like for this price motherfuckers do you, I need a better bed. Okay, go to go stay at the Metropolitan. They have Tempur Pedic mat- mattresses. It's like the the Metropolitan, one hundred percent stuck in the fucking eighties. They only have one outlet in the bathroom, and they have like one outlet that you can use in the bedroom. But the fucking beds are awesome, and the pillows are great. Perfect. Just I'm down. I don't need outlets. Fuck the outlets. I'll bring my little external charger. Yeah. So. <clears throat> that shit in the car. Darren, <laughs> Darren had spiraled further out of control. He had holed himself up and couldn't bring himself to eat or do practical things like, like plan his daughter's funeral. He had lost four stone, which is the equivalent of 56 Jesus. pounds. And he wasn't big to start out with, was he, from the picture? I mean, he's I a saw? stocky man. Like, he's a, he, was a, he was a shorter, like, I want to say he's probably like a 5'10". Yeah. You know, pretty stocky, well-built gentlemen you know but what i mean like if i lost 56 pounds it would you could tell but i would still be plenty healthy but he yeah 56 pounds in that amount of time though because that's like yeah he lost 56 pounds in a couple of months yeah that's a lot of um his clothes count. were basically hanging off of him and the family had been coming over constantly to help him and angie and they had been a really good source of help and positivity and darren was really thankful for that but he had started drinking heavily he wasn't eating he wasn't showering he mm. wasn't wasn't doing the things that he needed Mm. to do. Darren's sister had started planning Becky's funeral and it was just something that Darren couldn't bring himself to do. Like he couldn't focus. I couldn't. And he, I think that that would be one of the hardest things a parent would have to do. Mm -hmm. Plan a funeral for one of their babies. Mm -hmm. 
So the lack of money in him and Angie's bank account was becoming pretty worrisome. You know, he hadn't been to work. He had taken all this time off to do the search for Becky and everything else. On top of finding out that his daughter had been murdered by his own stepson, you know, that doesn't ex- that doesn't scream awesome mental health. No. You really shouldn't be at work No, when you're in that kind of place. The community banded together and had started taking donations and giving it to Becky to give her the send-off a princess deserved, and that's exactly what she was going to get. The donations came in at over 11,000 pounds, which, if you do that math today, would be about 15,000 in America. Which, by the by, I just did a funeral. Let me let you know even a modest fucking funeral we'll is like 10... Oh, yeah, like 10 Gs. Mm-hmm. So... Don't die because you can't fucking afford it, okay? Right, I can't even afford to die. So Darren's sister had taken the money and she had started putting together um, the funeral arrangements and how Mm. they wanted everything to go. She was really her best self. Like, I love this woman for this reason. She is her best self when she has a project. Mm -hmm. And she is one of those people that like down to the smallest of details, she has it like down pat, like Shit is on lock. The only thing that Darren insisted upon, and I think this is really sweet, was that the services be held at the same church where he and Angie got married 18 months earlier. Becky had been so happy that day that her smile had never left her face. And if you look at all the, like, all the photos that Mm -hmm. they took, she really is smiling. And for a sullen teenager that is, you know, teenagers in general, it's like, it's a fight to get them to smile, but she really was just like a bucket of grins. And so I thought that was really sweet. Um, Sarah arranged the colors of the funeral to be blue and pink, which were Becky's favorites. There was a horse-drawn carriage that was going to be taking her to her final resting place. That part gives me the chills. I know. And it's in the book too. Like the pictures of the horse-drawn carriage. Mm -hmm. It's very pretty. Um, she had also written a tribute to Becky as well and took care of listing all the pallbearers too. Darren had one task, okay, that he had kept for himself. He wanted to write her eulogy. No. Every time he sat in front of a blank sheet of paper, his mind went blank. He knew that his little girl, like, he knew her inside and out. He knew all of her greatest things. But when you are faced with the task of writing a eulogy, it's time to put pen to paper and make the words they just wouldn't come Mm -mm. the funeral date was set for april 17th the day came and the family gathered in the honor of their lost little love bug darren had finger quote scrubbed up nicely and he knew that becky would have approved if she had been able to see him he asked angie who was in black and blue with a rose pinned to her blouse if she was going to be able to do this Her MS had worsened immensely and the brain fog episodes were getting worse and worse by the day. Her mobility was way downhill and despite all of this, she wanted to be there to support Darren and say goodbye to Becky. I don't think I'd miss it either. Like, even if I was on my, like, you better put me, strap me to a bed and wheel me in. Yeah, definitely. But the, the stress of the tragedy and everything else had taken a toll and her MS flaring was like nonstop. Mm -hmm. Um, And anybody that deals with chronic illness autoimmune disease you all know what the brain fog is like and you should all know what the inflammation in your body is like Mm -hmm. and when you're stressed out like that how it doesn't stop no it's 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 a it's it's a downward spiral of suck Mm -hmm. 
Danny was visibly nervous and shaken that day, and he was set to carry his sister's body to rest. Nathan had been his friend, his brother, and Becky, his only sister, his only biological sibling. It had dawned on Darren that he had not yet asked Danny if he was okay. And when he did, Danny just nodded. But when Danny laid his eyes on the casket, he went pale. He was only 20 years old. So he looks at Darren and he's like, Dad, I can't do it. I can't carry it in. So Darren knew exactly how his son felt in that moment. And he doubled over in sobs when he saw the box that was holding his daughter's body. The carriage was drawn by a beautiful white horse that had been adorned with pink feather headdress. Becky would have loved it. Darren was amazed by the sea of people that had turned up for the services. There were hundreds of people there to pay their respects to the Angel of Bristol. The police had temporarily shut down the shut down the streets for the funeral procession. I bet there are a lot of people. A lot that went. A lot, a lot. When they arrived, Sarah's husband st- um, stepped in for pallbearer duties for Danny. When it came time for Darren to deliver his reading to Becky, he shut down, struck with a tidal wave of grief. He asked for the Reverend to step in and deliver the eulogy instead. This is the reason I don't like funerals. Not not the reason. One of them. I, the eulogy always tears my freaking heart out and stomps on it. And my dad gave my grandpa's and I thought I was going to die. I was like, I will never, ever make someone read my eulogy ever. If anybody ever does, I'm going to haunt your motherfucking ass. I read, I wrote one for my dad. Mm -mm. Um, and I did get it out. Um, the greatest compliment, um, I got was from my oldest brother who did not get along with my dad, my stepfather. Um, they had a very tumultuous, rocky, rocky, rocky relationship. And he had called me later after the service and said, I had zero intentions of feeling anything during that. And he was like, you, he's like, I'd forgotten what a good writer you were and how well, and I've done this my entire life. I've always written short stories. I've always done Mm -hmm. poetry. You know, he was like, you (laughs) got me right in the feels. And he was like, I just wanted to tell you that you had done a really beautiful job. I always think of your writing when, I, when I'm reading these that you've written, and I'm like, I don't ever think of saying shit like that. I'm like, and then they went to the store. <laughs> okay. The eulogy. Okay, if I get upset, I'm just... It's a couple of pages, but I want you guys to hear it. <clears throat> when Becky started school, she was so shy that she wouldn't even let Angie leave her, leave her there on her own. So Angie ended up being an unpaid teaching assistant for four years. We remember her coming home one afternoon when she had just started her year at the juniors and she was crying. When we asked her what was wrong, Becky told us that no one would play with her and that she had the wrong doll. So we went out and we made sure she had the right doll for the next day. And on that day, she returned home all smiles and excitement and told us about her new friends that she had made. The friendship lasted all the way through junior school. She soon, she soon became a mentor for younger children joining the school. And although still very shy herself, she would watch out for any child who stood on the playground on their own, looking lost and scared. She would encourage them to join her little mentor group. That was Becky all over. She couldn't make friends herself, but she didn't want the younger children to make, she didn't want the younger children to feel like she did. We received letters from parents of these children thanking us for her big heart and everything she did for theirs. Secondary school was when our family went through very dark times. Becky was bullied about her weight, and consequently, we almost lost her due to anorexia. But with a lot of care from us and Bristol Hospital Education Services, we were able to get our Becky back. 
Once in hospital education, she made two new friends, Courtney and Adam, and became inseparable from them. She was happiest. She was the happiest we had seen her in a very long time. We used to call them the three amigos. Gradually building up her confidence, she started to go out more and more. She really became fashion conscious, developing her own style and always looking immaculate. Becky left a huge void in our lives and touched the hearts of the nation. We all loved you so much. And as you look down from heaven, just look at what your short life has achieved. Not bad for a shy girl. Mm. You will... For- Don't do it. I know. I'm not looking at you. Don't. You will forever be in our hearts and thoughts. Rest in peace, Angel of Bristol. Thank you to all the people of Bristol, all the fundraisers and support, and everything we've received from the entire country. Damn. I know. Darren was unable to continue his duties as pallbearer and take Becky out of the carriage. His brother-in-law took over for his for his spot, took his spot, and he walked out next to Angie instead. After the casket had been loaded into the carriage, Darren then released a single white dove into the sky, whispering goodbye, Bex, to the small bird. Becky's aunt saw a younger teenage boy standing outside the church, sobbing as the carriage pulled away. When she approached the young man, he tearfully explained that Becky had been his mentor and taken him under her wing, for he too struggled to make friends. Becky was the only friend he had, or did have. Darren broke down again, as a little bird disappeared around the back of the church. Following the services, the family and about 60 others went to the cemetery for the burial. Tanya did not go, as she was unsure how she would react to um react having to be in close proximity of angie which i i understand uh, you know it sucks because it's i i so i had to pose this question to a handful of people right i'm like would you harbor resentment to to the mother of the person who killed your child and it was literally split 50-50. And all I can think of is Veronica Fitzen's mom, mm-hmm. Miss Jeanette, mm-hmm. who tried to embrace Roger's mom and tried to reach out and let her know that she wasn't angry with her and wanted to grieve with her for losing her son. And I think Jeanette's guilt and shame and everything else, or not Jeanette's, but Roger's mom, kept her from doing that. But literally every person I asked, and I asked about 30 people. Like, I asked all my coworkers. I asked, like, my friends. And it was split 50-50. Like, yeah, I would totally hold them accountable. They fucking raised them. And then, you know, the other half was like, how are you going to be, like, that? she didn't do it. Like, She didn't really raise him either is the thing that I've been thinking of. She birthed him, but she really didn't raise him except for she saw him on weekends. Right. He was living with his grandma. The grandma Nan Nan or whatever the fuck her name is, is the one that I've been side-eyeing because I'm like, what did you do? Yeah. What, what was going on that you, and perhaps, perhaps there was some, some parenting issues. Maybe he really was just born a fucking creep. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But, um, well, they had been at the church services together. They weren't near one another, nor did they um, even have to see one another. Tanya didn't want to look at the face of the mother of her daughter's killer. Following the burial, Darren and Angie and several others went to a local pub to hold Becky's wake. 
After a few somber tunes played and a few sad mentions, Darren took to the stage to let everyone know that Becky would not have wanted everyone to be so sad. He had upbeat disco played and a dance-off started on the floor. After several dances, Angie started to smile and she told Darren she knew Becky was watching them from heaven and making fun of her old man. Darren and Angie took about five days after the funeral to themselves. They asked for no visitors and shut themselves into the house and asked for um, visits to cease for the time being so that they could have a chance to recoup. Like you would, you want a minute. I don't want people. I don't want anything. I just want to do, just go away. Yeah. Darren took the bo- took to the bottle a little harder thereafter and spent five days in a complete haze of alcohol while Angie mostly just stayed in from in front of the TV. Eventually, the pair decided enough and decided to go on a getaway to clear their minds. They chose a spot that Becky really loved and packed their things for a last-minute retreat. That was supposed to be a refreshing reset, and it had the exact opposite effect. Mm-hmm. So, unfortunately, what was supposed to be this nice little reboost where they got to get out of the house where their daughter was murdered, spend some quality time without people coming to check on them, which, by the way, it's, it is a lot when you're trying to grieve that people don't leave you alone. Um, and it can be kind of unnerving um Darren like the minute he pulled in to the parking lot of the resort he just filled full of dreads dreads plural more than one yes he just all of the dreads um the place that they had chosen to go was this resort called Butlins everywhere he looked just brought back floods of memories that he had of his daughter and while he was trying to shake away these feelings that had just washed over him he couldn't and It was one of those things where he was like, okay, I'm here to feel good about life and, you know, spend time with my lovely bride and, you know, just wasn't happening here, not happening during dinner. Darren had blurted out that Becky should be there with them. And he now had felt guilty for going, like going to her favorite place without her. Angie, I wondered, like when I was reading through this, I wondered why they would go to something that she like, I would go I don't know. Well, I don't I, know what I would do. But. I, I, and that's, uh, the, I don't know. Like, I I think grief does weird shit mm-hmm. to a person. I know this firsthand. I know grief does weird shit to people. And I, I really just think that, like, there is, you know, there, you're like, oh, let's go to this place. Like, we always had such a good time there. And it was Becky's favorite place. And, you know. I'd be like, I'm never going there again. No more. But I'm weird. I'm like, no. Nope. But it's, it's you know, it's one of those things where, like, you're maybe you're trying to, like, honor her memory or, or whatever. Um, you know, Angie had tried to console Darren and she, like, reached out to hold his hand. And he snatches his hand away and, like, it, like, made her jump, like, shocked her. And, again, Darren railed Angie for Nathan's crime. And he, you know, he was like, this is because of your bastard son. He should be dead, not her. And it was, Darren just smashed her with waves of hate until he like, he picked up his glass to finish his cocktail and he like sat there and like slowly turned the glass in his hand for a minute Mm -hmm. and he put the glass down and he's like, let's get out of here. So she agrees and they get back to their suite and when they did, he completely breaks down. He like, 
He apologizes profusely for his behavior. He's like, I can't believe that I would talk to you like that. I can't believe that I would take my anger out on you for what Nathan has done. And he's like, I think I might be fucking going crazy. And she, Angie, sweetest little dove that she is, just holds her husband and they cry and grieve together over their now obliterated lives. Mm -hmm. Um, When they got home, they said that they were both more exhausted than before and still grieving. Like, the trip did not have... Uh, I can't imagine that would have gone right in any way. No, not in any facet. So Darren Darren decided that when he got home, he was going to start putting the house back together. So after the investigations, the house was still in a state of complete disarray from the police. Like, Becky's room was still quite a mess, and they had not taken the time to put the house back in order. And it was a little upsetting for both of them. Like, when your house is upside down and you're... Let's 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 look at it this way. When my house is fucked up and it's my fault, I I hate it. Now, if my house was fucked up because the cops had turned it upside down doing a murder investigation, I'm not sure I could be in that space. No. Like to be honest, somebody come in and take care of all this shit. Yeah, I, I don't. Get back. It, it would be it would be a rough go. Mm-hmm. So Darren starts tidying up the house. He had found a sketch while he was cleaning that Becky had done to remodel her room. She had put together like. Floor plans, right? Down to the smallest detail of what she wanted. So Darren decided to carry out the plan to renovate her room. The first thing he did, like he went out and he bought this bright fuchsia bedspread that she had asked for. And he took some of the like teddy bears and things from like well-wishers that they had put in front of the house, right? And he took a stencil that she had made before her death and put it on her wall. And it said the best thing about making... The best thing about memories is making them. And she had made that stencil herself. So Darren had found this to be pretty therapeutic for him. While he's in there cleaning up her room and putting everything together and like putting new things in, which he said like the old things and the new things like went perfectly together. Um, He started talking to her. Like he would just be like, you know, I'm going to put this right here. And if you don't like it, give me a kick, you know. Um, whenever he was having a bad day, he would go in there and be like, oh, you know, today was really rough, Bex, and be really great if you were here, and, like, started talking to her. Um, anyone who ever came and stayed at the house, they used Becky's room for the night, and anybody that stayed in there said that there was a peacefulness that could never be described, and whenever they slept in there, it was, like, the most incredible sleep they'd ever had in that bed. However... Marley, the little kitty cat that belonged to her, remember mm-hmm. when they went to go get a dog and they came home with a cat? So this great big tomcat would not go back in the room, ever. Um, it was said that Marley used to, like, that was his space, that was his room. Um, and it was almost like the cat knew that something horrible had happened in there and he avoided it. Mm. Now, this cat was not a fearful cat. He was not a small cat. He was a beastie cat that terrorized the neighborhood and was known to have killed foxes that roamed too close to the house. Jesus Christ. Yeah, so this cat's like a a mat. This is a mean motor scooter, right? Yeah. But he would never go back to the comforts of Becky's room. Instead, this cat decided to go back and he slept on the front porch like on their stoop and would never go in Becky's room. Darren had started back to work because the bills were starting to gather up. And with him being the only earner in the house, it was up to him to resume his duties as usual. However, his usual was much harder than it had been before. 
He struggled to get up and go to work every day. And Darren thought that if he went back to normal, he would feel normal. And while his employer was happy to have him back, offering any kind of support that he might need, Darren's behavior at work was not kosher. Um... He was trying to focus and keep himself together until he got home, but there were so many triggers that were setting him over the edge. Like things as small as a TV show coming on that Becky liked or hearing a song that reminded him of his daughter. His grief erupted in fits of rage from throwing things across the room to battering people verbally to like uncontrolled sobbing. He said at one point in time, he would like, he would be clutching his chest from the pain of heartbreak Mm -hmm. and couldn't like was having a hard time keeping his shit together so he wasn't surprised when he got called into the hr manager's office one day and he thought for sure that he was going to be losing his job but that wasn't the case joe the manager addressed him gently by telling him that none of his coworkers blamed him for his actions but that they knew that he was suffering greatly he said that his said that his outbursts were to be expected at times and joe then asked him if he had tried to contact becky now this is where shit gets a little a little weird. A little weird, a little emotional. Yeah. Okay. Now, me being the extra sensitive um, person that I am, I fully believe in this kind of shit. Mm-hmm. And I, I know because I've experienced it. But it would be very odd <clears throat> for your HR manager to be like, so, but then have you contacted your dead daughter? Well, no, because she died. That would be me. You would <laughs> be like... I feel like you would give a different answer. I'd be like, so what happened was that she died. So <laughs> no. Generally, when a person dies, they don't communicate. I had her phone turned off. And even if I didn't, like I text her, she didn't text me back. So. So where are we at with that? Yeah. Of course, you know, Darren is looking at her like, what the fuck? Mm -hmm. And she goes on to explain that she attends this very spiritual church of sorts and that they hold these gatherings to speak to the departed. Now, Darren was still very unsure of this, but Joe persisted and was like, so were you free tonight? Like, that's how she was very persistent. She was very persistent. And was like, so. aggressive. And aggressive. So she's, you know, hey, are you free tonight? And he's like, yeah. Perfect. Well, so, at that point, I feel like he would take anything I grasp at anything. <clears throat> I think so, too. But I've, you know, as well as I do, like, I have that really thin veil mm-hmm. to the other side. And it's, yeah, you know, it is what it is. So if somebody was like, have you talked to your dead daughter? I'd be like, well, you know, I reached out, but nothing, you know. Yeah. You, on the other hand, would be like, the fuck is your problem? No, I haven't. So, no, of course <laughs> I have not. So... Darren, Angie, Joe, and his boss, Lee, gathered at Darren's home and was, she, like, so she set, sets up what essentially would be like a seance, okay? Mm-hmm. So they they get together and she was able to contact the spirit of Becky. And Darren and Angie are both like, mm-hmm, right. You know, they're really <laughs> yeah. skeptical. But she was able to provide them with enough evidence that they both left the table knowing it was very real. So Joe told them that Becky was in a circle of healing, that this is something that happens when a person's soul is taken away in a very violent way and they're connected with other known souls. So like close loved ones that preceded them in death Mm -hmm. and they, they basically hold her in a circle of healing to repair her ravaged spirit. Mm -hmm. Um, She said that um, Joe told them that she wouldn't be able to communicate for very long because she was still very weak. So Joe went on to say that she was with two people in her healing circle, Charlie and May. 
Charlie was Angie's grandpa and May was Darren's grandma, both who were very close to the family. Joe then turns to Angie and she says, I have something from Becky and she hugs her. Now, the average Joe would be like, mm, a hug? Right. right. But Joe hugged her exactly the way that Becky used to hug her, which was like kind of a, it was a special way that she would like wrap her arms around Angie's neck to where like her fingertips were touching her elbow and like hang off of her and rest her chin, like rest Aww. her forehead on her chin. So very specific hug. Yeah. Not just a like pat pat Christian Oh, I'm sorry for your loss. No, she was like very specific in this hug. Um, she then turned to Darren and said, hey, I know this is going to be weird, but apparently you're going to know what this is. And she punches him in the arm. And Darren's like, oh, my God. Well, at the end of all of their training sessions, when Darren was teaching Becky how to box, she used to prove to her dad how strong she was getting by like slugging him yeah. in the arm and being like, good game, dad. Things that, like, Joe would not have known otherwise that were yeah. very specific to the, their relationship. Yeah, that they wouldn't get off the media right. outlets. That's not so, yeah. Exactly. So, Becky told Joe that she would ring a bell to signal them when she was ready to communicate again. Darren, of course, at this point is like, I don't know of any little bell. What the fuck are you talking about? Well, they end their little gathering, right? And he's still like, bell, bell, bell. Well, he's got all this nervous energy. He realizes that his daughter has been able to make some sort of like contact and he's feeling better about it. And he like starts, you know how people nervous clean. I nervous clean. I do. I pissed off clean. I, I angry clean oh, as well. God. So he starts to like move some things around. Well, in his like nervousness and his little anxiety tidy, he opens up this drawer and he finds this little purple bell that. Becky had bought on one of their little vacations, mm. like just a little knickknack. And so he takes it and he puts it in the front room. Now, I don't think the bell ever rang. I don't, it never said, but Darren took great comfort in knowing like what a weird thing to find after all of that. And to be like, bell, what bell? And then start cleaning and find a little purple bell that she specifically had bought on one of their travels. Yeah. So that, that kind of, I mean, that would give me a little bit of solace. As a, you know, as somebody grieving. So during the time in between everything. So at this point, the family's kind of in this weird limbo, right? Mm -hmm. Becky's funeral has taken place and now they're waiting for the trial to begin. Becky's birthday also took place and was celebrated. Um, they did a tree planting ceremony and they actually dedicated a lamppost at the park um, for Becky. So like the town or like the, the town of Bristol came together. They did a little tree planting ceremony. They had this little birthday party for her. She would have been 17 years old mm. and they dedicated a lamppost to her in the park. Um, another thing that Darren and Angie did was they invited her few friends over to the house. Um, so a couple of her friends that she made in school and her boyfriend Luke were, um, invited to come to the house and to take a gift, like take something from her room. Oh, And so, some of them took like clothes. Some of them took like a little necklace or, you know, something like that. Um, and during this time, Shauna, it was, um, it was brought to their attention that Shauna had caught her charges and would stand trial with Nathan before she had been like, um, assisting in a crime. And now they realized that she was also going to be tried for murder as well as like obstruction of just justice. Good. Yes. Um, and Darren bought the plots next to Becky. So, um, they decided that they wanted, like he bought the plots and it was kind of like whoever died first. Yeah. 
got to be buried next to Becky. Well, something that you can do, and I don't know if people know this, is that you can either be buried side by side or you can bury, be buried atop one another. Like if it's a, it's like where my mom and dad will be buried, where my dad is, they will unearth, like they dug down deep enough to put my father and then my dad will be, or my mom will be buried on top. Really? Mm-hmm, of my dad. I did in the not same know hole. that. I didn't know that either until everything went down. But that's going to be, when I meet that special someone, I'm going to be like, I want to be in the same hole as you. <laughs> We're going to share a hole. <laughs> <laughs> See, and I don't know, like I've never really asked Spencer, I don't know what he wants to do. Like I want to be cremated. Want to share because a hole? You want to share a hole? I, I honestly, like I, I could get, I can get behind like ha- like sharing a headstone and maybe having some of my ashes buried with him if that's what he chooses to do. But I don't want to be put in a fucking box and I don't want to be put into the fucking ground as worm food. I don't want any of the options. I just want, I want to be cremated and I really like go put me in the fucking orchard with my stupid fucking dog. Like that, like that was like the one thing <clears throat> after my dog died mm-hmm. and you know how much I love that stupid mm-hmm. fucking dog. I told, like, I had a conversation with God. I was like, when it's my fucking time, just send my dog. Send my dog to come get me. If I fucking hear my dog, if I see my dog, I'll know. That it's time to go. Yeah, dude, just send my dog. Okay. So, following following this is when Nathan and Shauna's trial is gearing up. So, Darren had been trying to prepare himself mentally to, to attend all of this. His employer gave him all the time that he needed off to go every single day for the trial. October 6, 2015, Darren woke up and he was sick with nerves. He had not slept and he was really worried about Angie being okay to attend. The investigators came to pick them up and take them to the courthouse. On the way there, Darren and Angie were given kind of a breakdown of how everything was going to go and how the proceedings would occur. There was an agenda that was provided and Darren was relieved to see the the original length of trial of 11 weeks had been shortened down to five to six. So even like the prosecuting attorney as well as the defense attorneys were like, yep, we're, we're going to, we're going to buckle this down. Mm -hmm. Like, so he was, he was relieved when he saw that the prosecutor and the investigators told Darren that while there was an outline of the trial events, there is a lot that isn't listed because it's information that wouldn't be disclosed until they were in trial. Um, and Darren, they like were trying to warn him that like, you need to brace yourself because these are going to be huge blows to like your psyche. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, they said that under no circumstance was anybody in the family to interrupt the trial. If you needed to step out so that you could regain your composure, have a smoke, like do whatever you need to do to get your shit together. Um, you could go out and come back in whenever you needed to, but you cannot be disruptive, like no outbursts, no screaming, like no obsessive crying. You know, that kind of thing. Um, everyone in attendance to support Becky's justice had pinned this little baby blue ribbon to their to their yeah. jacket. So day one of the trial was basically the introductions. So like the attorneys come in, they introduce themselves, they talk about the legal ar- arguments. So everybody comes in and they explain who they are, introduce themselves and what role they play. Now across the pond, they have barristers and solicitors. Okay, so they're two different types 
of legal entities in the courthouse, okay? So the basic difference between barristers and solicitors is that a barrister mainly defends people in court. A solicitor performs the legal work outside of court. So there are exceptions in both cases, but barristers can be distinguished from a solicitor. They're the ones that show up with the the wigs and the gowns and shit in court. Oh, shit. Yeah. So, and I, I even, conf- like, I went to my buddy Darren that I work with and was like, what the fuck is a solicitor? And he's like, oh, solicitor barrister. And he like, because he still has the accent. I Aww. love it. He just put his two weeks notice in. And I'm really sad because I enjoyed his company. I was going to say, I need a job there so I can talk to him. But I guess I, I don't. I, I love him. But he was like, they're, you know, they're the fat cats with the wigs and no. then the gowns. I was like, ah. So that's how a person will be given a solicitor and they are also given a barrister. So they have like a legal, like a paralegal and a lawyer. Okay. Okay. Um, Day two was the official beginning and that is when the jury is sworn in. They do the crime briefing, etc. Tanya and Danny were um, attending sporadically. Angie was there a handful of times and Darren was there with his family every single day. He was worried about Danny and Angie and he spoke to Tanya if needed. They remained civil, but I mean, they didn't have a good relationship anyway, and this just added to the contention between them. Oh, I'm sure, because I'm sure she was always like, you married this woman and this, you know, I'm you sure know. That, yeah, well, I'm sure that she placed a, a level of blame on Darren, you know, and that's, again, with the blaming people of things that are not their fault, but... They're like, they're, it's the six degrees of separation blame mm-hmm. that you want to put on people. Um, what are the stages of grief? Because blaming's in there somewhere. Yeah. Um, Darren's family came very often, if not every day. Now, Donovan Demetrius and Jade Parsons had pleaded guilty earlier that day to assisting the offender. They admitted to storing the packages that held Becky's remains, but they claimed that they did not know what they like, what they were and what they had. And if they had, they wouldn't touch them. Now, we'll get into that a little bit more, mm-hmm. like as the trial progresses, because one of the gentlemen that was actually involved in assisting the offender said some shit in court that like the courtroom erupted in cheers it's it was pretty like moving carl demetrius and james ireland were both charged with assisting too as well as transporting none of the defendants could be seen because there were screens to protect and obstruct their view and security had been mounted all the way around like the defendant's box to protect them as well the opening statements were read from the prosecuting attorney he started with rebecca watts known as becky age 16 was killed in her bedroom she was suffocated despite fighting for her life there there followed a deliberate carefully planned grotesquely executed plan to cover her killing following the removal from her home her body was cut up with a knife and a power saw the parts were carefully packaged and then moved to another address to prevent them from being found and to prevent them from lawfully being buried Nathan Matthews and Shauna Hoare. 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 That's how I say it every time I read it. It's H-O-A-R-E. And if I wanted to, I could look it up and I would know how to pronounce it. But it's We don't want to. I don't because Hoare. Are responsible for her death. And that cover-up was assisted by four others, including James Ireland, Donovan Demetrius, all acting together, who, in varying degrees, helped in the hiding of her now-disguised remains in the knowledge that she had been killed 
or that some other significant offense had been committed by Nathan Matthews. In addition to his apparent dislike of Rebecca Watts, there is good reason to believe there was also sexual motivation. Behind the scheme arising from a shared unnatural interest in attractive teenage females. That if was and that a foreseeable conclusion to their plan being carried out would either be Becky's death or serious injury. The prosecution also noted that there were stun guns that were used in this crime. Darren knew that Shauna had purchased the stun guns months earlier. Yes. Stun gun, just one, sorry. Um, they had, in fact, stopped the morning of Becky's murder to get batteries for them. In that moment, Darren realized that what they had been plotting, that they had been plotting Becky's murder for a very long time. William Mousley, the prosecutor, said that Becky was killed between 11 a.m. and 12.45 p.m., and her body had been placed in the, in the truck trunk of Nathan's car directly after. Darren became sick at the thought of him walking past his daughter's hidden body when he had come home from work that day. What the fuck? Mm -hmm. Mousley proceeded to tell the jury how the body was discovered four days later after Nathan admitted to killing Becky. Um, He explained that Nathan had intended to kidnap and imprison Becky and that he had to strangle her. He insisted that he acted alone in the murder, dismemberment, and the removal of her parts. Mm -hmm. I call bullshit. Mm -hmm. Mousley further explained that Nathan's purpose for kidnapping Becky was to scare her and to teach her a lesson. Teach her a lesson. Aren't we always teaching lessons? I swear to God, every episode we have, someone's teaching a fucking lesson that shouldn't be teaching lessons. Just saying. Can I get a fucking amen? Mm Mm-hmm. Nathan had accused Becky of being selfish and treating his mother badly. And here is Nathan's account of the murder. So Nathan said that he had taken a large bag, a stun gun, handcuffs, and tape to attack Becky. He claimed that he had been wearing a ski mask to conceal his identity, but in the mayhem, the mask had slipped up, revealing his face. He said that he then tried to force Becky into the bag, and then he strangled her. Nathan said that he stuffed her body, laptop, phone, some clothing and bedding into the bag and carried it to the car, and into the trunk it went. He said that he acted alone and that Shauna had not seen nor heard any. Anything. Nathan claimed to move the bag into his home and up to the bathroom after Shauna had gone to bed. Later, he would use a circular saw to cut up, wrap her parts, and transport them, again, all without Shauna's knowledge. Nathan claims that if Shauna had known, she would have called the police on him. Bullshit. Uh-huh. Bullshit. 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 Can we call someone called bullshit? Get your like, phone. Get, get your fucking waiters. Called bullshit. The shit is deep. Shit's getting fucking thick. You don't want that getting inside your shoes and your socks, in between your toes. Motherfucking thicker than a Snickers. <laughs> yep. There's now nuts in this shit. This shit's got nuts <laughs> yeah, in it. This is nuts. What does he say on Deadpool? This shit's got. This shit's gonna have nuts. I can't remember. <laughs> I just watched it the other day too. Um, Nathan had made an attempt to cover his tracks, but was easily discovered by investigators when they realized that the house they went to search was cluttered and dirty, except for the bathroom, which was squeaky goddamn clean. What? Shauna maintained her innocence all the while through everything the police questioning, even after they confiscated her phone and get this shit. They found a YouTube video that she had sent to Nathan, and it's the Frozen parody of Do You Want to Hide a Body? Yeah. Now. That has been in my head since. 
For a few days now. Do you want to hide a body? Which this now takes all the fun out of that. It really does. Why, why did you ruin it, Shauna? Whore. 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 Way to go, whore. And if you guys are unfamiliar with the do you want to hide a body, which nobody should be unfamiliar with this. Which was funny when we were talking about somebody that's a total fucking shit bag that we want to hide their body. But now it's not funny because she wasn't a total fucking shit bag. Um, like I said, you have 100% like ruined this for fucking ever. That's so fucked up. Oh shit. So now they have taken all the fucking fun and like morbid hilarity out of that because they actually fucking did it. So she maintains that she sent that to him to cheer him up. And and I'll I'll reiterate that later. But that she had no idea that Becky was actually dead and that he did dispose of her body in such a manner. Horseshit. Bullshit. Bullshit. Bullshit and horseshit and all the shit mixed together. All the shits. That is shit. So many. The day after the murder, Nathan had gone to make some purchases that included drain cleaner, plumbing chemical, and the CCTV footage showed him in the hardware store to buy the saw, goggles, gloves, etc. Um, there were also cameras that captured footage of Nathan and Shauna together making purchases for garbage bags, saran wrap, and tape. Which, um, so, but then, those were all the things that were used to wrap and sort and transport Becky's I, body. I have probably purchased those things at once in a big shopping trip, but not for that. Well, I have never gone and purchased, like... Not just those things. Yeah, no. It was... So, anyway. The jury was then told that Becky had been stabbed 15 times post-mortem in her abdomen. Darren had not known about this and nearly vomited at the thought. Nathan had claimed to done to have done this to drain fluids from her body. He claimed that it was something he had seen on TV. Mousley went on to talk about the dismemberment. The body had been taken apart in eight different locations. Expert advised that this would have been easier to have been carried out with more than one person. And this is when he took a shot, like, looked at the defendants. So you've got Nathan and Shauna sitting next to each other up in the fucking defendant's box. And they're, they're like, separated by this little screen or whatever. But they're, like, in the same area together. Mm -hmm. So the prosecuting attorney looks up there like, uh, yeah, this would have been easier to achieve with two people. Like, the two people sitting right there. And this was, like, his way of indicating, obviously, that more than just Nathan was involved regardless of their claims the body was then carefully wrapped and packaged in several layers of cling wrap before being taped and stored in different containers and bags darren was then shocked again when the news of becky telling a close friend over two years ago nathan had cornered her and in explicit detail told her how he was going to kill her darren had never known about this becky had never mentioned anything close to this to her dad and darren then was hit with, like, a stab of guilt because 
Nathan had been like he was trying to piece this together for two years. Nathan had been terrorizing her, telling her that he was going to kill her and take her apart. And he never knew. And she didn't feel like she could tell her dad. Instead, Becky had felt it necessary to confide in a friend. And the the friend's identity had been concealed um, for a, a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. And Darren really wanted to know who it was. He was happy that Becky's friend had come forward and told the police. But he was really crushed that he, he knew that him and his daughter were so close that he really thought that that would have been something that she told her dad. Mm-hmm. And she didn't. And this was something that, like, Darren started thinking, like, okay, well, maybe Nathan convinced her that Darren wouldn't protect her. Like, how far had he gotten into her head in those, like, two years? And what did he make her believe? Yeah. So. They can do a lot, those. Pesky bastards. Yeah. Those manipulators. Those manipulators. The prosecuting attorneys ended with telling the courtroom that, um what she had been wearing that day. So they talked about her little onesie and the jumper. Now, for those of you that are unfamiliar, uh, a jumper is basically a pullover, like a hoodie or a zip up jacket. Um, because when we think of a jumper, we think of like, uh, overalls, like overalls. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Darren had teared up at the thought that that was also the last thing he had seen her in when he went in to turn off her TV that night. And she was laying there in a onesie and a pullover. Hmm. So Darren had gone home to Angie after that day. Um, she had asked to be filled in on everything that took place because she was unable to, to attend due to a really bad MS flare-up. Darren struggled to tell her about Nathan's confession, the kidnapping, and her re- or his reasoning why. And he said that Angie's eyes dimmed when she heard that Nathan had used her as his excuse to attack Becky. That's fucking horrifying. The following day, Nathan had accepted the charge of manslaughter opposed to murder. He already admitted to killing her, but he was still insisting that it wasn't murder. Darren was appalled that anyone would even entertain this idea. October 8, 2015, Lisa Donovan, Shauna's mother, took the witness stand to give her testimony. She said that it had been about four years since she had seen Shauna and Nathan. They had been living in the annex of her house, but they had... um a falling out that resulted in them moving out on bad terms. She said they had inexplicably inexplicably, and suddenly come to her house to visit after Becky was noted to have gone missing. Hmm. They had come to the house February 23rd to see the family and three more times after that. Lisa said that she knew something was wrong. She guessed they needed money or a place to stay or something. When she heard that Becky was missing, she jokingly asked them if they had anything to do with her disappearance. They denied the accusations, but there was something lingering after the fact um, that made Lisa nervous. It was noted that during Shauna's interrogation, she was giggling through the duration. All right. I get awkward smiles and awkward laughs. Like when shit gets serious, I smile really big. I I am an awkward laugher. Yeah, me too. So I'm going to give her a little bit of the benefit of the doubt on that one because I, I do that Bad. It pisses me off that she did that, but I am a nervous laugher mm-hmm. and I get like, I, I get weird and I do that. Like I smile and I laugh uh-huh. when I fucking shouldn't. Yeah. Like when it's, shit's getting real, smile on my face is big as shit and I have to be like, okay, I, I don't to mean expl- to do this. I don't know how to get it to go away. I had to explain to the officer that arrested me in 2012 for DUI that I was not excited to go to jail, that I like 100% was going to cry later, but for right now I'm going to have to laugh. Mm-hmm. 
Like I'm scared to death and I know that I'm in deep shit, but I'm going to have to laugh. Cause I and don't this is know. not, yeah. 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 Like I am without a bra and shoes and I'm being arrested for DUI on the side of the road in the middle of the fucking yeah, It's not winter. funny. It's not funny. No. No. Yeah. So I'm hoping that that's all I'm going to give her that tiny little bit. She was questioned seven days after Becky's death. Shauna also explained that she thought Becky was rude, disrespectful, and that she was a manipulator. Uh-huh. Shauna said that she had lied and was acting during her... Oh, she was acting during her bout of anorexia and that she was using the illness as an attention-seeking act. Shauna went on to describe how Darren and Becky were always fighting. She said that it would have been better for Becky to have gone into foster care instead of living with Darren. Shauna was playing at a dangerous game. Darren was furious, as you could imagine, listening to this little bitch talk about your daughter when she knows nothing. Come on. Of course he knew she was lying about those things, but would the jury pick up on it? Thankfully, Mousley, and Mousley knew that knew what she was up to. Shauna was much smarter than Nathan. Shauna was a master manipulator. She thought that she had outsmarted the prosecutors by weaving a tapestry of lies to distract the police from her part in the murder. Darren knew he should not have been upset by her ploy, but he was. It really got under his skin. As it would. It doesn't matter the source. I, you know, you can tell yourself, consider the source. But fuck, when somebody's up there talking shit right? about your dead daughter yeah. and you know that it's a goddamn lie, fuck. Yeah. That would get under your skin no matter what. Day 6, October 12th, 2015. This would be the start of week number two in the trial proceedings. Darren had been warned beforehand that this would be a very intense and grueling as there was forensic pathologists and Becky's injuries would be read out loud. Angie opted out of this day, but Darren Steadfast was there. This would be the only day he would hear, or this would be the day that he would hear the most terrible things imaginable. So he, they at least had the wherewithal to let him know that what was coming next was like, this is the dirty nitty gritty of your daughter's murder. Um, Detective Sergeant John Dowding took the stand. He had been one of the two officers to search the shed that Becky's remains were found in. He described the shed as full. He explained that there were blue plastic bags to the right of the door, a rucksack was on top, and a number of suitcases. The officers took the largest suitcases near them and opened them up. Inside, there were several parcels. When Dowding pulled a package out, he examined it, squeezed it to see what was inside. He said the item was soft, squashy material, but there was something harder inside. Since they could not identify what was under the plastic and tape, they then unwrapped it. In the several layers of cling wrap and tape, they discovered a right hand clenched into a fist, severed at the wrist. Mm-mm. So, for those of you who think about that, so did Darren, mm-hmm. because he, like, <gasps> and covered his mouth, and he leans over to his sister, and he goes, she, she fought for his life, like, she fought for her life. Like, her hand was still in a fist when he cut it the fuck off of her body. So, his, Darren's sister is, like, gripping his arm. And, like, she described it as she wasn't, she wasn't even, like, she didn't even have the nerve to turn and look at Darren at this point. Darren had taught her to box. He instructed her on how to defend herself. And never in a million years did he ever think that she would be using that against her own brother. Mm Mm-mm. 
That's not who you think you're teaching your kids to defend themselves against. No, he should have been defending her as her brother. Yeah. Not cutting off her limbs. No. So the forensic pathologist, Dr. Deborah Cook, took the stand. She identified the color and the brand of the bag that held Becky's head. She noted the head was damp and coated in white crystals. Dr. Cook took over an hour to detail all of Becky's injuries, which included 14 cuts and contusions to the face consistent with suffocation and struggle, 15 stab wounds to the, stab wounds to the abdomen, 8 body parts removed. The body parts were packed in cat litter and table salt, which acted as a type of preservative. She added, this is not common knowledge for the average Joe and would have been something that they had learned via the internet. Now, I want you to keep this in mind, okay? Why would you want to preserve the body parts, okay? Like, just put that Mm -hmm. to the side, okay? And hold on to it. Okay. The same day, there was a recording played for the court of Nathan's police interview, which was before he was arrested. It was eight days after Becky had been murdered when Nathan would say he didn't particularly like Becky. He called her her self-centered and demanding. He also mentioned that he did not believe she truly suffered from anorexia. Nathan had also said that, that he did not help search for Becky because, quote, no one told me what and when things were happening. Mm-hmm. It couldn't possibly have been that, you know, you knew that she wasn't going to be fucking found because you suffocated her and then you chopped her up in pieces. And you're a lazy fuck and you don't even want to try to cover up that you're the one that hit her. So you're not even going to go look for her. Yeah, like no one told me what was going on. Wait a minute. Hold up. Nobody told you? Motherfucker, you should have been the first bitch out in the street patting your fucking feet on the concrete looking for your little sister. Uh, or turn on the TV. I'm pretty sure it was there, too, if you needed some information and people weren't home. Jesus. You dumb some bitch. Darren grew more and more hateful of Nathan as the recording played. Did Nathan really believe that because he didn't like Becky that he had a right to hurt her? Who the hell was he to teach her a lesson? For real. Yep. The following day, which was October 13th, the onesie and the jumper that Becky had been wearing were shown to the court. Both were tattered and bloody and had been cut cut up the back. The court had also seen the goggles and the other items used in the act of the dismemberment. These had all been hidden inside one of the suitcases along with the saw. Darren left the courthouse that day seething with rage and was it was everything he had to keep from spewing his feelings to all of the TV cameramen. So day eight of the trial, the prosecution dives deeper and deeper into the apparent fascination with young girls. Mm -hmm. So police officer Sean Groves took to the stand to discuss the text and Facebook messages he discovered during the investigation. And they were read out loud. Oh, shit. There were several interactions between Shauna and Nathan where they talked about kidnapping schoolgirls from schoolyards or supermarkets. One response from Nathan was, okay, so Shauna texted him and was like, oh, I saw this pretty young dish at such and such supermarket. I almost kidnapped her and brought her home for us. And his response was, don't you almost me, do it now, bitch. God. And she was like, yeah, I'll just knock her out and then time travel her to the house. Like, just... In the middle of the daylight. Yeah, and it was... Shauna and Nathan had talked at great length about keeping a hostage in the attic as well. These back and forth texts went from really casual to very explicit, but they were almost like everyday conversation. Just like, oh, I saw these two little petite 
things with, you know, big bottoms or whatever. And I mean, they're talking about 13, 14, 15, 16 year old little girls. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's an opinion time later where. Yeah. We'll, we'll touch bases. Yeah. Darren went home that evening and told Angie all about the day's contents. She was absolutely stunned. Who the hell are they? Who have we been letting into our house? Darren felt bad for Angie. The boy she had raised was a complete stranger to her now. October 19th of 2015 was an equally hard day for Darren. The forensic team forensics team had to describe how Becky's blood had been found upstairs in Darren's house. The makeup from Becky that was found on some of the items Nathan had tried hiding. His DNA and Shauna's DNA on the face masks and other items. William then called one of Shauna's friends to the stand. This person was not named in the court, but the girl described how Nathan was jealous of Shauna and how he tried to control everything she did, how she couldn't have friends or go out with him. He was paranoid and didn't even like Shauna speaking to anyone of the opposite sex. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. She also told the court that Nathan had been obsessed with Becky and how much he hated her. Darren had a sharp stab to his heart when the court was shown a replica of the saw used to cut up Becky's body. The attorney plugged it in and switched the saw on. The noise that filled the room was deafening. The next day, Courtney, a friend of Becky, was called to the stand. She sobbed as she described the mental and emotional abuse that Nathan had inflicted on Becky, how he always told her how he was going to kill her. Becky was scared of him. Nathan had, in detail and graphically, told her how he was going to end her young life more than once, many times. Nathan's grandmother, Nan Margaret, took Nan the stand. Nan Margaret. Nan Margaret. This is the one that I have. This I got is questions. The one I'm against. Yep. I got. I need to talk to you. And I like, dude. I get it. Like, not not everybody, not everybody contributes to the delinquency or the fucking psychopath right. inside somebody. But I have questions. Yeah, exactly. Like I don't want to. I don't want to jump to conclusions and blame you. But I have questions. questions. Yep, exactly. She had given a brief idea of what he was like growing up. She did say that his mental health had taken a turn for the worse um, over the past few years, and that Nathan seemed to be growing more paranoid and skittish. He had begun to hoard things in Margaret's home. She said that she had to put a stop to the stashing because he had packed rooms full. From floor to ceiling with broken things, anything, things he claimed he was going to fix and then sell. Um, I swear to God, he sounds like a tweaker. Uh, right? All I can think like, of hey, is I'm just saying, I, I know too. that, I'm, yeah. dude, when you have spaces full of fucked up appliances and electronics and shit and your goal, I'm gonna fix it. I'm gonna fix it till it's broke. I'm gonna fix it. I'm gonna sell it. Watch. Refurbished. It, it's <laughs> But that, to me, sounds like a Mexican american Yeah. Yep. But you didn't fix it, did you? Just throwing that out there. <laughs> well, Margaret said that she had never seen him act violently towards Becky or Shauna. Darren was now faced with hearing Nathan's prepared statement the following day. He knew what had happened and why. Or at the very least, he had the prosecution's version. October October 20th was the third week of the trial. Mr. William Mousley started his day by advising that he was going to be reading the prepared statement of Nathan's confession. So Darren and his family decided that they would be seated differently for Nathan's portion of being on the stand. Mm-hmm. Okay, So they decided that he was going to be in between his brother-in-law Sam for the remainder of the trial. 
And then he would have his sister on the other side and then another brother also in attendance. That way, if there was any time during the trial that he lost his temper, that a stronger person would be there to contain him. Right. Um, which I think is a great idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because how do you not fucking lose your temper? I, Just saying. Hello, you're talking to somebody that struggles and has been diagnosed with IED, which is Intermittent Explosive Disorder. And if you don't know what that is, feel free to go ahead and Google it because it's fucking awesome. Google it. But what happens to me when I lose my temper is chaos and beauty and fucking, it's scary. Yeah. So, and I am little. Like, I am easily managed by a bigger person. Spencer would put his arm out like moms when we were little before yeah, he had to wear yeah, seatbelts. Yeah. Just put his arm yeah, out and be uh, like, no. Got it. Well, like even the certain people have a, a more serene calming effect on me. Um, so certain people can just say certain things and I'm like back down to baseline. Mm-hmm. Other people ramp shit up in me like poking a fucking badger with a steak. Mm-hmm. Nathan, so they... They go into the meat and taters of Nathan's shit. Um, he described himself as emotionally unstable and psychologically disturbed. You don't fucking say. What? What? I'm so surprised. <laughs> Let me show you my surprise face. Okay. <laughs> um, his confession was then read by his solicitor. Mousley um, concluded the day by describing how this entire plot was hatched to make Becky, finger quote, more appreciative of life and to make her less of a stuck-up bitch. So, if you guys were curious about that their confession, mm-hmm. I happen to have in my very possession. Oh, good. You have in your possession a confession. Okay. It's kind of aggressive. It's an aggressive confession. I, oh, my God. I don't know if I'm ready for this. Um, yeah, it... <clears throat> That's why I was trying to download the book, because I was going to read this shit to get myself ready, okay. and then I didn't have time to do it. Um, I could have loaned you the book after I was done, um, but there are things that make me so fucking mad. It's a good thing that I'm getting my teeth fixed. Let's just put it that way. Because you've like, been grinding the shit. I do, and I sit and I like rake my top teeth across my bottom ones. It's not healthy for my dental, but... Uh-uh. I, Nathan Charles Matthews, accept that I am responsible for the death of Rebecca Watts. On the 19th of February, 2015, I attended 18 Crown Hill, St. George, Bristol with my girlfriend, Shawana, Shawana, Shawna Hoare. 18 Crown Hill is where my mother lives with Darren Galsworthy. Rebecca Watts also lived there. Shauna is my mother's registered carer, so we regularly go to the house to help with housework and help with my mother's needs. Although we were usually there Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, we did go there other days. Thursday, 19th of February, part of the reason for going round was to return a tin to my grandmother. My grandmother was due to take my mother to a medical appointment and bring her back. In my car, I had a large bag, a stun device, handcuffs, tape, and a mask. I had developed an idea to scare Rebecca by kidnapping her. I wanted to kidnap her to scare her and teach her a lesson. I believe that she is selfish and her behavior towards my mother was a risk to her health. When we got to 18 Crown Hill, we let ourselves in with the key that my mother had left near the recycling box. Upon entering... 
the property, we all went through the front door. A few minutes after arriving, Shauna said that she wanted a cigarette and went into the garden. When she was in the garden, I went to the boot of my car. I took out the bag, which contained other items. I took everything upstairs to the landing. I then think that I took the items out of the bag before knocking on Rebecca's door. She replied, what, or hello. And I said, can I see you a minute, or similar words. Rebecca then opened the door. I am wearing a mask. I cannot be sure in which order things happened immediately after she came to the door, but I used items that I had to subdue Rebecca. During a short struggle, my mask slipped and Rebecca was able to see my face. This caused me to panic and I strangled her while she was partially in the bag. I collected the items that I used and put them and Rebecca into the bag and zipped it. I took her phone, tablet, laptop, together with shoes, some clothes, and a duvet cover from the spare room in a separate bag. I took everything downstairs and I put it in the boot of my car. Back in the house, I waited to hear Shauna, then slammed the front door shut. Before going to the front room, I checked that Shauna was not in that room. The rest of the day at the house goes as it normally would. If we were there, we would leave at about 7 p.m. a little bit after. We return to 14 Cotton Mill Lane. I go and lie on our bed, which is what I would normally do. The rest of the evening passed as, I, as usual, but I could not remember exactly what we did. After Shauna went to bed to sleep, I waited and went out to the car and brought in the bag and brought the bags into the house. The following day, we went to 18 Crown Hill, and I tried to behave as normal as I could. When we returned to 14 Cotton Mill Lane, I again waited for Shauna to go to sleep. This time, I collected the bag with Becca's, Rebecca's body and took it to the bathroom. I took the body out of the bag and placed it in the bath. In order to stop Shauna from using the bathroom the following morning, I poured drain cleaner down the toilet so I could tell her that it was blocked again. The toilet would often get blocked, and I knew that this would keep Shauna out of the bathroom. I also locked the door. My memory of the days following are not so perfect, so I'm not sure which day I returned to 14 Cotton Mill Lane, having left Shauna at my mother's, but I think it was Saturday. When I got to 14 Cotton Mill Lane, I tried to dispose of the body by cutting it up with a circular saw. I initially wrapped the body parts and took them back downstairs and hid them. I'm not sure how many days later, but on another day, I took the body, the saw, and the other uh, and other items to 9 Barton Court, Barton Hill. I placed them in the garden shed. I took them to this address with two other people. I did not tell them what was in the bag or the box. I said I would collect them in a few days. Both of the people are men, but I did not want to give their names. I have not chosen... Excuse me. I have chosen to give my account by means of a written statement because I believe I have a mental health and learning difficulty that make it difficult for me to say things out loud. I also find it difficult to express the detail in this account in spoken words. I would like to add that my denials to date have been motivated in part by a wish to avoid the pain and disappointment these admissions would cause my partner and my family. Shauna did not know anything about my causing of the death of Rebecca or my attempt to dispose and hide of the body. Had she known, she would have reported me to the police. Apart from this statement, I will exercise my right to silence. I don't like it. So, that being said, Angie had decided that she would be in, in attendance for the next day. She had been trying to get in and see Nathan and, like, make eye contact with him. Mm -hmm. Angie had been determined to make her look her in the eye and tell her why he had killed Becky, but she never got her wish. Darren had not attempted to talk Angie out of coming to the courthouse for a couple of reasons. One, 
If Angie set her mind to do something and she said she was going to do it, she did. And Angie was one of those people that like, you pretty much knew better than to get in her way. Mm-hmm. If she says I'm going to do it, I'm fucking doing it. The other thing, and is this is kind of dirty, but I completely identify and I like with Darren on this. Deep down, Darren wanted Angie to see this. He wanted her to hear it firsthand. He wanted her to see the fucking monster her son had become. Yeah, after he's been sitting there day after day watching that, I bet he wants her to actually see it too because he's been coming home saying this. And right. I bet that she's like, well, this is partially your opinion because you're mad well, at and him. It's, dude, it's like me having a conversation with my husband about his children. You know what I mean? It's still going to be a difficult thing to hear and to like process and absorb. You know, if I have um, difficulty with discipline or, you know, there's been a, a situation in which, um, you know, a dishonesty has occurred. There still is kids. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? So it's not the same as being there and looking somebody in the face and hearing it come out of their mouth. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So the trial didn't start until late the next morning. So there was plenty of time to like get ready get everybody situated, get to the courthouse. When they arrived, the trial started with a bang. It was like, and we're off to the races. A video played of Nathan after the arrest. Angie basically just sat there and stared, like unblinking, watching this video as he talked about how he killed Becky. Nathan didn't never make, like he never looked up. He never made eye contact with his mom. And Darren said that she just looked incredibly sad said that early interviews with Shauna were shown and she talked about being afraid of Nathan. Shauna also had been quizzed on the noise coming from the bathroom when he was cutting up Becky, to which she denied having knowledge of and said that she thought Nathan was fixing the plumbing. October 26th, the constable read the transcript from Shauna when she was arrested. She denies knowing, says that she is sick and appalled at his actions, and the police then show her a picture that's being painted like, listen, we have these texts about you guys talking about abducting little girls. We know about the YouTube video on, you know, do you want to hide a body? You then try to say that you were sleeping through the sounds of a circular saw indoors in a bathroom. Now, for those of you who don't have porcelain or whatever in your fucking bathrooms or tile, everything fucking echoes in the bathroom. And a circular saw, you can hear from outside. You can hear... Dude, you, you can, can hear, hear a circular saw from your fucking neighbor's house. Uh-huh. Let's be let's be honest. And she has a child. Therefore, usually, when you have a baby, your sleeping is a little bit more alert. Dude, you're a light sleeper on a good day. Mm-hmm. So you're going to hear a motherfucking circular saw. Well... They're, they're like, uh, can you see the... Pa- like, do you see the picture that's being painted... With you being like, oh, but I am 100% innocent. I did not serve as an accomplice. And Shauna then, she's like, I get it. I know this looks, uh, he's sick. He's sick and the sickness, the hate has taken over him. And she like starts weeping and shit. Um, and when they're like, okay, but um, yeah, we agree that he's fucking sick. But do you want to explain why you sent him a fucking YouTube video about do you want to hide a body? And while we're here, and I know that you clearly don't want to admit this, but you're <sighs> fucking sick too, bitch. Uh, yeah, well, do, do you want to maybe explain this one? Because, and then she goes on, she's like, it was a joke. Um, I sent it to him because I was just trying to raise his spirits. You, So, wait. 
I realize that I have a sick motherfucking sense of humor, right? Like, this is not up for debate. Everybody knows that I am a dark, morbid, macabre fucking weirdo. And we've shared that video. I am a creep. Everybody knows this about me. And if you don't know this about me, because some of my coworkers listen to the show now, welcome to Thunderdome, motherfucker. Now you know. (laughs) Now you do know. But never, ever, never, ever, like, if... If somebody went missing in my husband's family and there was a current fucking manhunt for them, under no circumstance am I going to raise his spirits by sending him a Disney parody video called Do You Want to Hide a Body? Because that would make it better. How? That's not even funny. Like, no. that's, it, I guess that would be really funny to them, seeing how they did, in fact, need to hide a body. Like, then, okay, I can kind of sort of see it, but you took the fun out of my fucking video because, because y'all we really didn't did hide bodies and we I don't really plan do on it. Uh, we didn't do what? <laughs> well, and she's like, but I just wanted to make him laugh. I'm like, all right, well, I. You make me want to puke, bitch. I punch her in her fucking face. She's got bad eyebrows and an even worse face. Like, she looks like her parents are close, closely related. And just that fucking smug look on her face. If there is one thing that I can't stand about a person, it's when they're really arrogant and smug and glib. You know what I mean? And they just have that really smirky, smirkerton fucking face. I just want to <sighs> punch you in the neck, meat. Like, I struggle. I struggle daily with certain people that I have to fucking interface with on a daily basis that have that smug fucking face. I hate that. It bothers me. I hate that. It bothers me, Mucho. So Tuesday, October 27th. Let me get off my kick about smug pieces of shit. This marked the very first day that Nathan's defense was going to jump up and down and try to save him little soul This was day 14 of the trial, and Angie was more determined than ever to make her appearance in court. The prosecution had closed their arguments with a hefty blow. They had... Okay, are you ready? You fucking ready? Because this is gross. Right? I'm I'm ready. Okay. I think. They had found pornography on Nathan's computer. Big Mm -hmm. surprise, right? Like, lots of people watch naughty films and indulge in spank films, right? Right. However, this was a film of a woman who was portrayed as very, very young who was being raped in this film. There is a scene where the victim is being restrained, slapped, and smothered with the perpetrator's hands. Angie looked like she might throw up over the similarities from the pornography to the actual murder. Mm-hmm. And Nathan, though Nathan claimed that assault and kidnapping and subsequent murder was not sexually motivated, it's quickly coming to light that Yes, it was. Yeah. Why yes, else would he was. hate her? I think it's one of those like, um, you know what? Maybe maybe the porn industry should really stop the uh, stepbrother, stepsister, stepmom, stepdad shit. Like you're 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 sexualizing and turning these roles into like. And granted, it's not like the fucking pornography industry has a moral compass for fuck's sake. No, (laughs) let's, let's go ahead and like, I'll maybe one day we'll get into the, the true crime of the film deep throat. Fuck. But you guys are, you're, you're, you're glorifying little girls. Like how many times have you seen like the barely legal or the like, and hello, we're guilty. We went to the barely legal club when we were in lust or up. New Orleans. Yeah. You know what I mean? And there's 
there were some girls in there that like they turned 18 last Tuesday. And I was yeah. like, sweetheart. Yeah. What the fuck are you doing in here? Yeah. Remember like the little girl that I gave the Harry Potter thingy to? I was like, boo-boo, the fact that you're connecting with me about Harry Potter right now tells me that you are not mature enough to be in here. No. And maybe neither am I. <laughs> well, we all know that I'm not, but whatevs. Yes, my um. <laughs> yes, my um. <laughs> so Nathan was called to the witness box. He appeared what? Darren described as smallish, shrunken, and cowering. He refused to look at the stand where Angie and Darren were staring at him. Darren refused to look away from him, but Nathan never dared look at him. I can't imagine. Nathan's lawyer opened with a confirmation of basic information and then took it straight away to, did you mean to murder Becky? And at this point, Nathan break down, like he breaks down weeping. No, I didn't. He then like puts his hat like, you know how you cross your arms and you put your head down? Mm-hmm. And he's like weeping into his arms. And at that point, Angie starts crying as well. Nathan claimed that he was in constant pain from his fibromyalgia, which seems funny to me because let me, let me not know. Okay. So somebody being in constant pain from fibromyalgia, not fucking funny. Okay. I have several people, including family members that have fibro and that shit's not funny. Mm. What I do think is funny is that for somebody who's in constant pain, you managed to do a lot in a short amount of time. Like, think about it. First, the actual killing of a feisty 16-year-old. Then you stuffed her in a body. Then you carried her to the car, swinging her into the trunk. And then you removed her from the trunk. You carried her up fucking stairs. And then you took her apart. You wrapped her up. You carried her out of the house. Did some fucking shopping. Like, bruh. That's more than just moving couches. Like, that's not just rearranging furniture or, like, sweeping the porch. Mm-hmm. Like, that is a lot to do for somebody that's like, has chronic pain. Yeah. For real. And anybody that knows, like, if you have somebody in your life that has fibro or you suffer from fibro, fucking God bless you if you do, I'm sorry. You fucking know everything I just read to be an insurmountable fucking amount of shit to do in a, in a short amount of time. Right? Right. Okay. All right. Like, just a 16-year-old in a bag. Alone. I'm just, hey, man, I'm just, like, throwing that out there. That is a lot of fucking... Like, Step and, one was too much. Right? And, like, not not even... Let's just, like... Then you stabbed her in the belly 15 times. And then you took a circular saw and fucking took her apart. Like, did you know that, like, her torso alone was probably a good fucking 80 pounds? Yeah, there's... No. Homie, you did a lot of shit for somebody that's in a lot of pain. Yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah. So that being said, Nathan was then asked about his mom's MS diagnosis and he started crying again, claimed that he was very worried about his mother. So this really pissed Aaron off because Nathan is pretending to give a shit about his mom. And this is really, this couldn't be further from the truth. Like he didn't give a shit. He never gave a shit. Here's my thought. On his mom, his mom bullshit. He's worried because he says that Becky treated her bad, and I'm sure it was because she put her through stress with her, uh, what you know, her, yeah, uh, anorexia. What the fuck did he think this was gonna do to his mom? So no, I think I call your bullshit again. All of it, all the bullshit. Like you don't get to pretend. Like if you gave a shit about your mom, if you were genuinely concerned that your teenage stepsister were was being ill toward your mom then you sit down with him and you say hey man 
you need to realize that like when you leave stuff on the stairs, when you don't pick up after yourself, like my mom's really tired and her energy level, like you don't fucking kidnap them and strangle them. If you think that Becky is being disrespectful, then lead by example, motherfucker, because there's several examples of you being equally as disrespectful. Well, and right here, all the stress you just put your mom through, you just cost her years, probably. Oh, stress... she's, she's got one foot in the fucking grave and yep. another one on a banana pill. And it would have been a lot less had you not murdered your sister. Right? Nathan went as far to say that Becky intentionally left stuff out for her to trip over. That he she was always swearing and shaking, like shaking the house up and through his entire like as he's describing these behaviors that becky supposedly had allegedly angie's just shaking her head like the whole like through all of it she's shaking her head and my hope is that the jury and anybody else in there is watching his fucking mother disagree with him through all of it because Mm -hmm. that like she was still she's disagreeing with him silently but visibly and she's still like upset that he used her as his motive for murder nathan admitted that he knew his mom had an appointment that morning and that becky would be alone he recounted his version of the day's events and admitted that he'd been thinking about this for several months um nathan said that he had intentionally been using a deeper voice and that he was sure that she wouldn't know who he was with the mask on he cried again when he said that he like when he talked about putting Becky into the bag and that she started resisting. He said that's when he grabbed her face and pinched her nose and restricted her breathing to make her pass out. He kept saying that he he was telling Becky that if she was compliant, he would release her unharmed. He explained that in school, the kids would play the pass out game. So he knew it. He knew that he could do it, but it just didn't work. Um, he said that he thought about knocking her out and he punched her in the face and claimed to have only hit her once. He claimed that he didn't feel comfortable doing that because he was hurting her. Oh my fuck. Oh wait, no, it gets better. Nathan explained that he did the pass out game again, but this time he did it differently. The way that he had seen it done on people that were hard to pass out. He said that it only took a minute and she stopped kicking. He said that he then started putting her in the bag, but something didn't seem right. And he checked her for a pulse and she didn't have one. Okay, now you ready for me to go on my rant? Because I, sh- I know that you know that what's coming. Oh, most I'm, people I'm, um, <laughs> most people that are fans of true crime should know the rant that I'm about to go on because this is utter bullshit. We covered what bullshit it is in the Rodney Alcala series and like, and many others. I mean, we could we could really we could go on and on about this. And let me fucking tell you why. Anybody who knows anything about strangulation for starters, you don't just pass someone out and they fucking die. Hello. Look at what the BTK did. Look at Rodney Alcala. Look, there are so many people like when you strangle a person, it's not all willy-nilly 60 seconds and they fall over. It's not like in the movies. They don't go and they just stop breathing. What is that Ronald Ronald Jane Simmons? Yes! Put him in your mind while he sat there and stared at the little kids for seven minutes? Isn't that what he said? Yes! It is like, okay, strangling someone takes more than just a few seconds to a minute. If there is anything I've learned in my true crime career, it's that strangulation is a deeply intimate crime okay not only are you using your hands you are likely looking into the face of your victim and this takes many many minutes to accomplish now think about the time that like i want you to set a fucking egg timer okay 
set a timer, set a kitchen timer. And I want you to go and stare at the fucking wall for seven minutes and see how long that feels. Yeah. Okay. Because that is generally how long that it is going to take for your victim to stop fucking breathing and for their pulse to diminish into nothing. Now, where they're actually dead, not just pass the fuck out. Now, I'm not denying the fact that somebody that's like more skilled, like, you know, somebody that actually does fucking jujitsu or some MMA shit like fucking Frank or my buddy Dean or Brianna Mattingly, who will all fucking do jujitsu, that like those motherfuckers know some shit about some shit and they can get in there and do a fucking blood choke and have a motherfucker like unconscious and probably well on their way to the ER in a matter of minutes. That being said... This motherfucker didn't know his ass from a hole in the goddamn ground. So for him to be like, oh, you know, pass out game. So I smothered her and then she didn't have a pulse. You're a lying motherfucker. When you said your buddy Frank, I was like, I have a friend named Frank that does jujitsu too. No shit, bitch. Imagine that. You <laughs> That's why I started bastard. laughing. You're like, oh, you too. Because <laughs> I was like, oh my God. My name's Forrest too. <laughs> Fuck. But like, this is okay. So. This person, like Nathan was not skilled in anything except self-pity, victimizing himself and hate. And this little worm would have struggled way more than he let on. Plus the fact that 14 facial injuries and contusions were found on her little face tells me that she didn't just pass out and die, you fucking loser. You fought. You fought her. And you fought her and you hit her more than fucking once. And you didn't just like smother her a little bit and she like killed over and was like... And, and wilted like a delicate little flower. Fuck you. With a paper clip in your pee hole, you are a fucking liar. 14 facial injuries, but I just played the pass out. But game. what I did was I just reached around all willy nilly, gave her the stranger, covered her mouth and pinched her nose, and she just went out like a light. You're a fucking liar. You a lying asshole. You a whole ass bitch. Right I, now. I played the pass out game and it's. No. Like they usually come too before they hit the ground. You, you that's you're a lying piece of shit. All right, so motherfucker. All right, mo motherfucker. All right, <laughs> I, let me let me regain my composure because that th- those are things I know and I know them for a fact and I know them for a fact because they are in multiple fucking cases with serial killers and other you know. Anyway, the point mm-hmm. being, you're full of shit. And there is no amount of sobbing, weeping. You are not going to convince me otherwise. And this is how stupid he is. Is that he doesn't even try to, like, think that people might not know that you don't just pass someone out that quick. Like, does he really think he's going to pass this off to them? That's how fucking stupid he is. You are legitimately talking to trained professionals who know some shit about some shit when it comes to passing people out, strangulation, and all fun things associated with your crime. And you're going to look these fucking people in the eye and be like, who's like, no more than a minute? And she just like died and then she fucking didn't have a pulse no more. Whoa. That's how stupid you are. You stupid son bitch. That's how fucking stupid you are. He knows how long it took because he did it. So he knows how long. And he's going to try to pass it off. Oh, these people don't know. They've never done it. I just, um, yeah, dude, I, I, when I read that, um, I hit the fucking struggle bus hard because I, I realized that most criminals that do things like this are probably not all high IQ motherfuckers. And, um, but I know that if I, if I committed a murder and I was sitting in front, like if I brought, if I was brought in for questioning, 
I I have a pretty good idea. Like, not everybody that they question is a suspect, but I have a pretty good idea that you motherfuckers know some shit about some shit. But if I had admitted that I was responsible for the death of somebody, at that particular juncture, I'm just going to tell the truth from here on out because, like, what's it going to hurt? I already admitted to it. And furthermore, I just look like a big dumb ox trying to convince them that, like, oh, no, it was quiet like a little church mouse and she just, like, fell asleep in my arms and then didn't have a pulse. And I was like, oops. Whoopsie. That wasn't the lesson that I was trying to teach her. But since I have all this shit here for backup, like a saw and a mask and goggles and shit, I'll just, just, I'll just take care of it. Yep. No. Yep. Yeah, dude, I just... No, bitch. That's, that's how fucking simple and stupid you are. Mm-hmm. Now, after all of this gets said out loud... Angie accidentally chokes and lets out this huge cry, right? Like mother's anguish. Nathan broke down as well, hearing his mom cry. Court was adjourned for a brief moment and Angie had to excuse herself. She was pushed out in her chair so that she could have like a massive breakdown. Darren struggled to keep it together, but he knew that if he let go of his emotions that he might not recover and he had to go back in that room. Um... When re- oh, so, so when court returned to session, Nathan was asked why he didn't go to the police if everything was an accident. Okay, so I was ju- I was just gonna kidnap her and teach her a lesson. Stuck up bitch. Okay, these are his words. I was just gonna teach her a lesson. I was gonna make her appreciate life. Okay, so here's <laughs> you went a little too far, bud. So if everything was an accident, why didn't you just go to the police? Like, hey, you know what? I had this dope headed plan like I realized that this sounds fucking stupid but I had this retarded fucking plan and it went sideways and I accidentally fucked up and I killed my little sister like why not just because then really you would have been guilty of like involuntary manslaughter like that wasn't even like I didn't even do the shit on purpose we were playing the pass out game and I plugged her nose and she just passed out and she just died So Nathan claimed that he couldn't go to the police because he couldn't let anybody know what he had done. He said that he panicked, so he he tried to grab as much shit to make it look like she had just, like, taken off. He then said that he attempted to use the stun gun on Becky, but it did not work. He said he didn't tell Shauna because... Or he didn't tell Shauna and was trying to act normal in front of her because he... She would have thwarted his plan. She would have stopped him. Really? Right. Nathan said that he had decided to dismember the body in the early hours of the morning following an attempt to dissolve the body in drain cleaner, but it didn't work, so he cut her up instead. Now... It was literally 2015. Google some shit. Fuck. But wait. There's more. Mm-hmm. Remember how he put the body parts in fucking kitty litter and table salt to preserve them? Yeah, Google them? that. You fucking had the mental wherewithal to Google that, but why would you want to preserve them if you had once attempted to dissolve them? My... Do tell. Explain <laughs> it. Explain it. So you you bought drain cleaner and plumbing chemical to pour on her body in a half-assed attempt to, like, re- recreate the acid bath killer. And you failed. So you take the body apart. Okay. So that makes sense, because you got to get rid of the motherfucker somehow. Except the body parts that you so carefully wrapped for disposal were coated in kitty litter and salt for breast, for preservation. Because he just happened to have saran wrap, tape, kitty litter, like, all the shit needed, and a saw. So, what the fuck? So, when you can't dissolve a body, you decide to preserve a body? Show me on the map where that fucking makes sense. Let me tell you. All right. 
He's going to preserve it because he thinks he can put it back together later and it will all be okay. Like, what is it? Like, well, He's not stupid. Tell, tell me, Scooter, which one is it? You want people soup or you want to preserve it? Because maybe the the Nathan's litter and salt poopery that he covered his sister in was an attempt to keep it from decomposing and smelling. Uh, I kind of get that. But how do you go from make it slime to make it pristine forever? For real. That, that's too make, totally, yeah. like, I think he was just desecrating the body. Yeah. My my opinion. Trying to make it so you couldn't tell who she was. Yes. Like, fingerprints. I don't know. I, I, don't know. I Maybe not even that far. Just so much as, like, he was desecrating the body. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think that he stabbed her in the belly a whole bunch of times to bleed her out. Mm-mm. Because, quite frankly, my dear, um, you were sawing her up. She was going to lose all of her blood anyway. You stabbed her in the belly a whole bunch of times. That was, like, a fucking rage. hate. Yeah. That was rage. So, and this is my unofficial fucking podcast sleuth armchair fucking diagnosis i i really think that the the act of killing becky was likely in my opinion sexually motivated i think he wanted to recreate the sex rape that he'd been watching um i think he probably had some unnatural feelings towards his little sister for a long time because she was forbidden yes Uh, that's my that's the no touchies yeah she's forbidden and so he's going to make himself hate her because she's forbidden and i think that he did harbor a lot of hate towards her for a lot of different things but i think that his well yeah and i think that the hate grew exponentially when he had unnatural feelings towards her couldn't fucking have her wasn't supposed to touch her you know, I think he got off on her being scared and fearful. I know he did. Well, I know I, he fucking did. And I bet Shauna was jealous of her. Oh, God damn. she knew oh, yeah. his thoughts. Like, even if he didn't put it, you know. Oh, you know he fucking did, though. Like, if they were talking through naughty text and message, whatever, whatever, about snatching little girls off the fucking street. Like, that's fucking. She knew. She knew. But that's the thing is, like, the stabbing of the tummy. Those 14 fucking cuts and bruises and shit to her face. Like, all of that shit wasn't done because you weren't trying to hurt her. You know? Oh, I didn't want to punch her. I didn't want to knock her out. I didn't want to hurt her. You're a fucking liar. Then why the fuck did you kidnap her, you douchebag? Like, so, moving on. Yes. Moving on. Oh, fuck this guy. Just (laughs) makes my asshole fucking pucka. (laughs) When Nathan was questioned about the act of dismemberment, he said that he didn't think about it he just did it he said that he just did what he had to do to protect everyone Mm -hmm. that means shit to me dumbass nathan said he offered ten thousand pounds to carl demetrius to transport and store the body parts and implements used in the crime he said that he couldn't think of any of anyone else and that he and shauna had isa accounts that they were going to cash in to pay him when Carl and James Ireland took the parcels, Nathan told them not to open them or look at them. Carl and James thought they were stolen goods and that they were under the impression that they were just hiding stolen property until it was sold. Right. Which I get that. I, yeah. I, I buy that. Mm-hmm. The proceedings ended after that, thankfully. Angie was so overwhelmed and shaken that she could no longer sit up straight in her chair, nor could she speak. It had been a harrowing day for her. Still, she remained steadfast in her desire to be in the courtroom during Nathan's time on the stand. He still had not looked his mother in the face, nor been able to speak, nor had she been able to speak to him, and she wanted him to look at her. Darren knew that he wouldn't. He was he was too much of a fucking coward. Mm-hmm. Mm, can't even look your own mom in the eye. Mm-hmm. October 29th, the trial 
continued, and there is no rest for the wicked. They started by telling the jury that Nathan had accessed, streamed, and downloaded porn daily. They described how the films um, he chose all figured, featured actresses who were barely 18 um, that passed for much, much younger. They probably right. weren't even that. So the, the uh, no, like that's, that's like an actual thing. So I, I did a little bit of research because it, um, they actually talk about like how porn is kind of an epidemic mm-hmm. and how more and more crimes against minors are being committed because they're being over-sexualized in mm-hmm. many, many facets, but especially pornography. And they were talking about like all the barely legal websites. They will take these girls that are 18, but without makeup, without, or like in certain clothing or whatever. Dude, they look like they're fucking 12 mm-hmm. or 13. You know what I mean? Hair and pigtails, you mm-hmm. know, little shirts with smiley faces. Shit like that. It's fucked up, dude. It is. Um, Well, that's what he was watching because most of the films depicted them as schoolgirls. The films also included scenes of extreme violence and sex or punishment. Yes. Nathan insisted that, like, he kept saying, like, I am not attracted to her. I am not attracted to her. Well, no, because it's fucking phony baloney bullshit because it's fucking fake. It's false. So he, Nathan insisted that he was not attracted to Becky, but he did admit that he always found young teens more to his liking. The jury was told how Nathan had reached out to several young teens via Facebook Messenger because he fancied them. The prosecution winded up on the cross-examinations and accused Nathan of peddling lies to his mother about Becky's disappearance for several days. Nathan said that he had no choice and that he couldn't tell his parents what he had done, and that he was guilty of repeatedly lying. Nathan said that when he was arrested, he tried to lie about it, and the solicitor saw that he was struggling about it, and when he was asked, he just broke down and admitted everything. Nathan said that he admitted his guilt because he had to give Darren and Angie closure. He had thought about telling them with texts or through Facebook messages, like acting as though he were Becky, and being like, I'm fine, I'm happy, you know, I'm safe, whatever. He said that he just couldn't do it, so he admitted to killing Becky instead so that his parents would no longer be looking for her and they could say goodbye. Prosecution hammered away at Nathan asking like, you do realize how ridiculous you sound when you say that Shauna didn't know that she had nothing to do with this. Nathan said that it, it, it was true. He's like, I realize this is suspicious, but it's all true. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll believe that when we shit turns, turns purple, purple and smells like rainbow. She are, but my shit. Disgusting. I love that one. Fuck. Disgusting. When one of you's had a shot. He says, he's like, you know, I I know, I realize this looks and sounds suspicious, Mm. but it's true. It's accurate. It's accurate. Very accurate. Accurate. So Nathan would go on to tell Mousley that basically he was going to take Becky and he was going to tie her to a tree and terrorize her and then untie her and let her go. And this is when Mr. Mousley looks at him and he was like, you are a thick bag of turds. Mm-hmm. What did you think? Like, so you were gonna, you, you were gonna take her out after you kidnapped her. You were gonna smack her around, tie her to a tree, terrorize her, and then let her go. Like, did you think she was just gonna go skipping off into the fucking sunset and like live her life all willy fucking nilly? Like, I just, I, well, I learned my lesson. Oh my god, I appreciate life so much after being abducted. And you maybe, maybe, maybe people do, f- now that I say it out loud, maybe people do, maybe people do fucking appreciate their life so much more after they've been abducted. But like, dude, 
No. Mm-hmm. No, no. No, no, no. No, 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 no. So, you know, Mousley asked him, like, did your did your attitude towards Becky change after you killed her? And he Nathan's like, I didn't have an attitude oh about her. Oh, my God. And he's like, well, what about the way you treated her afterwards? And Nathan, like, shrugs. He's like, that had nothing to do with the way I felt about her. And he's like, what about stabbing her in the belly 15 times? What about cutting her up into pieces? And Nathan's like, I just did what I had to do. No, you didn't have to do any of it. Right. And Nathan was described as not looking up from the floor. Like, he wouldn't make eye contact with anybody. Like you do when you're a piece of shit. Because it's planned. It was all fucking planned. For months. For fucking months. Like Hence that's all the shit that he just happened to have already. Like well, the, and so, saran wrap, the saran wrap. The saran wrap. The cling wrap. Well, and, and that's the thing. They're like, okay, so did you like it? Did you take pleasure in doing what you did? And of course, Nathan denies this. And he's like, Nathan was also accused of making up the whole story about the mask slipping up during the struggle. Nathan denied this as well and said that the whole point was for Becky not to know who he was, that the struggle would have been bigger. Mousley calls him out and said, you didn't have a disguise. You're pathetic. You killed her and you knew what you were doing. There was some back and forth as to what Nathan's real intent was. And Mousley continued to hit on him with things like, so she fought too much for your liking. Is that what, is that what you're saying? So she fought for her life. And Nathan was like, I didn't like it. You know, I didn't, I didn't want her to fight. And Mousley's like, are you prepared to look at the photographs of what you did? Mm. And Nathan refused. He's like, nope. What a little bitch. Yeah, like he wouldn't take a peek at his handiwork. You did what you had to do, but now you can't look at it? But now, we, we, now we're not looking at him. So there is that. Um, Nathan admitted that he never expressed any remorse or had conveyed apologies to his family. He still maintained that he acted alone. Um, he even claims that he cut up Becky using only one hand. Mm-hmm. So you're telling me that, okay, have you ever used a circular saw? Uh, once, baby. You have to have a hand on the saw and a hand on the actual fucking thing that you're cutting up. So if you are telling me that you can handle a circular saw while cutting through fucking human tissue and then bone, one-handed, then yeah, I can also, I don't know, lift up my sofa with one arm and vacuum it while, vacuum underneath it while I rest the sofa on my fucking shoulder. I don't You're know. You're Superman. Yes, that I am. Just so you know. I can <laughs> do many you know. things one-handed. That's why. All the one-handed so things. Underneath my couch. Watch me. Um, Nathan, yeah, and when I have to change a flat tire, I don't use a, a jack. I just lift the fucking truck up myself. With one hand. With one hand. Uh, Nathan and Shauna both admitted to lying about the kidnapping messages to the police. Shauna said that she had noticed scratches on Nathan after he had killed Becky, but that she didn't ask questions. She said she had lied about the kidnap messages because she knew that she was what he was being charged with and she didn't want that to look bad for her. I don't want to look bad. Well, I just I look know like the- a daft lying <sighs> ass bitch. Uh-huh. James Ireland and Donovan Demetrius both took the stand a few days later. They maintained that they had no idea what the parcels held. He said nothing. He said that none of them knew. He said the vile truth would have sent them running. They never would have been involved, and uh, had they known that Nathan had hacked up his own little sister, 
Carl agreed with everything his brother said in his own emotional speech. He could not believe that he had been part of something so heinous. They were horrified with what had been done. Carl said he struggled, knowing that his brother had found him in, the, in this position, but he said that he knew his brother would never have agreed to this if, if he knew. Uh, this is a quote from him. My heart goes out to her family. I couldn't believe what Nathan had, had done. Who in their right mind would dismember their own little sister? It's sickening. You think? Mm-hmm. Shauna was later described by professionals as Lady Macbeth, quoting, Be like an innocent flower, but a serpent underneath. Mm-hmm. Mousley encouraged the jury not to discount Shauna. She had played a role, even if they didn't want to prove it. Nathan's uh, barrister ended his arguments with asking the jury to place emotions aside when outing together their verdict. He agreed that Nathan's plot was boneheaded, but it had not been to murder Becky. He also pointed out that the lack of DNA evidence against Shauna... Sorry. He also pointed out the lack of DNA evidence against Shauna. He called her a survivor for having to deal with Nathan, mm-hmm. but that she was basically innocent. Basically. She's, for all intents and purposes, she's basically, she's basically innocent. She's basically innocent. Basically innocent sounds basically. very fucking convincing to me. Mm-hmm. 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 Do you want me to keep going? Or do mm-hmm. to... Go ahead. Okay. Um... On November 11th of 2015, it was the end. The verdict was to be made and sentencing passed to Nathan and Shauna. Everyone had been plagued with the idea that Shauna may go unpunished. Judge Justice... Dingamins. I know, I I struggled with that one as well. Dingamins. Mm-hmm. Sent the Dingamins. Dingamins. It's all about the Dingamins, baby. I, yeah, dude, I was on the struggle bus with that one as well, so just so you know. Well, that guy sent the jury to deliberation at 10.30 a.m. While they waited, Darren and Angie gave interviews to the news crews. Near the 2 p.m. mark, investigators collected the family to let them know the verdict had been reached. Both on kidnapping. Guilty. Nathan for murder. Guilty. Shauna for murder, not guilty with a jury revision for manslaughter charges, guilty. Shauna for perverting the course of justice, preventing lawful burial, guilty. James Ireland and Donovan Demetrius, not guilty for uh, for assisting. Sentencing took place November 13th. Mike Courtier stepped forward to address the press first. I would like to take this opportunity to pay tribute to Becky's family and friends who have shown the utmost composure and dignity during what has undoubtedly been the worst period of their lives. Becky Watts was a a typical teenager who was well-loved and, like most teenagers, had plans and hopes for the future. Tragically, Nathan Matthews and Shauna Hoare have made these hopes and dreams Dashed, have dashed these hopes and dreams away and make sure they will never be realized. Matthews and Hoare concocted a heinous plan to kidnap his stepsister for reasons they have failed to fully disclose, other than the occasional she-left-items on the floor. The body of evidence, however, has suggested a much more sinister motive relating to their deep-seated hatred for Becky and their sexual, their twisted sexual desires. So he goes on to talk about how Essentially, the two of them are sexual deviants, that they played a sick game of cat and mouse with the police, Mm -hmm. and that 
if a person admits to manslaughter and says that they've been planning stuff for the course of several months, you have been plotting to murder. Yeah. Especially if you told the child, the person, the victim, how you were going to kill him for two years. For two fucking years. So the the one, and I, I was going to read more of that, and I just kind of decided that I didn't want to just now, just barely. Just So I changed that. I changed that. But I am going to read um, her father's statement Ugh. to the court. It says, my name is Darren Galsworthy, and I am the father of Rebecca Watts, now known as Bristol's Angel. Our Bex was a child who, through no fault of her own, needed constant reassurance, love, and cuddles in her formative years. She soon clung to my wife, Angie, who had not only been a doting mother, but Becky's best friend. Angie's love was so immense, nobody's lost... Oh, God damn it. Angie's love was so immense, nobody lost out. It didn't matter that we were a mishmash of gene pools. We were a strong, loving family who shared and supported each other. We will never understand why this happened, but we now believe that we are just disposable pawns in a plot born out of hatred, jealousy, and greed. The heartless, cold, and calculating perpetrators of this despicable act of evil can never be forgotten or forgiven. This act of violence sent shockwaves not only through our family, but the whole country. When the news that <clears throat> when the news came out that two people had been arrested, and it was now a murder inquiry, our entire world collapsed. People were informed that body parts had been found, and they know who did it. I simply don't have the vocabulary to describe accurately the searing pain and anguish Angie and I felt that time. The only way I can describe it is like being cast off a cliff into a bottomless pit of despair and non-belief. These family members sat in our home knowing what they had done and watched my very public descent into madness and despair. They said nothing and carried on with the pretense of helping, showing no emotion at all. We would not have gone this far if not for medication and unyielding support from community of, of Bristol. The betrayal we feel is insurmountable. We have been, <clears throat> it would have been much kinder for us to have killed us all than for us to cope with the af aftermath of this crime. I had to watch my family, my loving wife's daily decline and her ability to function to do the easiest of tasks. She is now solely relying on me to get through every day. We both feel we are just making time until our demise. Our beautiful lives have been ripped from us in a very selfish act. We can't go outside the house without people pointing at us or making comments they believe that we can't hear. Not only did they cruelly rob us of Becky and her life, they also took the dignity and death. They did this all on Danny's birthday. When I close my eyes to sleep, I see Becky's death over and over. I see what they did to my child. I hear her cry, what are you doing? Then I feel her terror as she realizes they're not going to stop and she's about to die. I feel her heart racing. I see all of this and I'm powerless to help her. All too frequently, I wake up drenched in sweat and physically shaking. Becky was so small and fragile, she never stood a chance. These nightmares consume me every night like advanced cancer. They haunt my days and terrorize my nights. This is the reality of what transpired that day, a legacy I cannot escape. At this time, I pray that the law and justice will go in hand, go hand in hand, and sentence will fit the very evil and act of murder and butchery. Mm, so. I don't like that. Would you like to hear some sentencing? Yes, please. Nathan Matthews, life sentence, minimum 30 years before he can be considered for release. 
So he'd be 50 by 50. How old was he? 22? He'll be 58. Okay. He'd be 58. I can't remember what the before he ever, But before he ever even gets like a probation parole hearing. Which, Not probation parole. Yeah. Shauna Hoare, 17 years. Darren and Angie were approached by the jury member, like jury members afterwards to convey their condolences and sympathies. Um, they had given interviews to several outlets of media the day after the verdict was delivered. And I think this was kind of their way of gaining closure on an entire shitstorm of horrific things. Angie and Darren were able to finally say everything that they needed from the explanation of like there was sibling rivalry to Angie telling them she had no clue who Nathan was. And that she still loved her son, but she just couldn't understand or, like, I can't fucking stand the person he's become. Yeah. The days following the trial, Darren was so overcome by the most intense grief that he had felt in nine months that it, like, he he fucking had a whole nother mental breakdown, essentially. Yeah. It started with, like, he was standing in the hallway and her cat, like, came in stared at him and started meowing at him like pitiful wailing meows like he needed something and then he's you know he was having these memories of becky and the information about her death like shit that he didn't know you know yeah like the fucking stabbing in the belly and her telling her friend for two fucking years how nathan had been terrorizing her and just you know all the different things about finding out about nathan's porn addiction and his fantasies to the guilt of not protecting his daughter he, like, fucking fully melted down. Mm-hmm. Here's something that I thought that you would like to read because I think you would find this interesting. Darren likened them to Fred and Rose West. Yes. Who, if you didn't listen to our series, fancied teenage girls, liked violence. Um, Rose and Shauna, in both cases, never conv- conv- oh, Jesus, confessed to killings. Victims dismembered and buried on Cromwell Street um, all over because they were all young that they Mm -hmm. had, you know, done basically the same shit to except for severely sexually assaulting them as well. Right. Um, Rose and Shauna um, both denied knowing about their partner's crimes, which is Mm. fucking bullshit. You are full of shit. They kind of uh, remind me of... Uh, Ken and Barbie. I was trying right? to remember their real names. Carla, but Homolka I couldn't remember. Homolka and Snuffles. Snuffles. Gross. I know. Fucking the gross. dick strip and Snuffles. Ugh. God. You got a case of the dick drip. Could you not? I can't. I would like to stop now. <laughs> I would like to take this moment to invite you to stop. <laughs> so Darren goes to therapy and deals with grief, anger, and guilt. And then writes this book. Yes. In January of 2016, Darren was supposed to visit the house where Becky was murdered to collect items Nathan has stolen and hoarded but never got the chance to pick up the items from the police station. Darren has come to terms with Angie, uh, still loving her son. He can't see him in person but has moved past his desire to keep Angie from seeing him and fully supports her requests. Darren ends his book with with acknowledging that Nathan must have hated him for taking his mother's for taking his mother's time, attention, and affections from him. His hatred grew too great and focused on uh, sorry. His hatred grew too great and he focused it on Becky as a way to punish Darren. 
So there was a, a little something that was provided to Angie. Um, and it was a, a note from Nathan to his mom. Um, and this is all like, so to my knowledge in all of my, um, internet searches to my knowledge. Okay. So this all went down in 2015. Um, it does not yet, like I have, I, I have not yet found anything that says Angie has actually spoken to Nathan or that she has been granted a visit. Mm -hmm. She has tried and they were either denied by the like prison system or Nathan was Mm -hmm. like, nah. So this is the note that he got that he wrote. Hello, mom. I was told you wanted to ask me questions of why. And I know you are going to be very confused amongst other things. Sorry, but I have been advised not to talk about my case at the moment as what I can say will be misinterpreted, but I hope you can find Some, even if minuscule, amount of resolution helped by me explaining to you that what I, that what has happened was not meant to. Love you. So the letter provided no answers. I mean, it says Angie was traumatized by reading it. We were finally told about the letter, which had been kept from us for around eight months. She had hoped that it would at least say sorry, but but instead she was left bitterly hurt and angry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Nathan and Shauna both launched appeals, two of them each, that were denied by a single judge. Yep. Now it's Angie who faces death. So this is very current. This is like the most current shit that you will see from stemming from about 2017-18. Mm-hmm. Okay. She's 53 year old, years old now with multiple sclerosis. Oh, she's actually, I think she's 56. Oh, yeah. Yes. She's 56-ish. Um, multiple sclerosis and has taken a dire turn since the tragedy. Her conti- her condition has deteriorated. Because like we said before, with a, a disease like this, stress just eats it away. Stress makes you way worse. Makes it progress faster. So much fucking worse. The nightmare of the last few years has taken its toll on her. In an exclusive interview with The Sun in 2016-ish, Angie revealed that she is making her final preparations and has two more wishes left. Um, She wants to sit opposite Nathan in prison and confront him about why he killed Becky on that terrible day in February of 2015, wrecking all of their lives forever. And then she wants to be buried beside be- beside Becky, the girl she brought up as her own from six months old. The imposing black marble headstone that was recently installed carries a photo of Becky, who became known as Bristol's Angel. And below that, there's an empty space. Angie says, quote, this is what Angie's saying, this, that's for my name. I want to be buried with Becky, the beautiful girl my son took away from us. With the legal process now at an end, Angie wants to see Nathan one last time. She is writing a letter to him to ask for a meeting. Angie, now virtually housebound, says, quote, I want to know why it happened. I just want to see that he feels guilty. I want to know that he understands what he's done, not only to Becky, but to me as well. I want him to know that he's destroyed my life and that soon I'll be dead and I'll, be, and I'll die brokenhearted. I'll ask him why. I'll tell Nathan I can never forget him, forgive him for what he's done. I'm going to plead with him to let me visit him in jail. I'll explain 
This will be the last time he ever gets to set eyes on his mother. The last time I see my son. The last chance to look in his eyes. I hope somewhere there I can see the sweet little boy I brought into the world. I'm still his mother, but I can't forgive him for what he's done. I think I love him, but I'm really not sure now. He's done what he's done, but I'm still his mother. I haven't got long left, but I will, but I want to see Nathan before I die. So there is a little bit of information that I found, uh, actually later. Um, and I found this in the, so there's a source that we're going to put in the, um, show notes. Okay. That talks about the services that failed, ultimately failed Becky. So when you go to the safeguarding Bristol website, it actually talks in great detail about, um, like all the different places that they like, um, they didn't follow up. They didn't follow through. You know what I mean? Or they didn't, they didn't do their due diligence at the end of the day. So there's also, um, you, the guardian.com has, a an, an article on Becky Watts, um, talking about the care services that failed her. There's also a source to info regarding a sexting explicit picture issue that took place in 2014 while she was still alive, but was not revealed until 2018. Oh, shit. And that was covered by the BBC news, the BBC.com, um, which basically what took place was she had been sexting with a, a an individual close to her age and shared explicit photos. And that person then turned around and threatened to expose and manipulate and exploit her with those photos. And it was said that um, Darren had threatened to throw her out of the house. Now, in the book, it never talks about like, oh, if you sent that boy dirty photos, I'm going to pitch you out of the house. From what I understand and what I gathered from news articles. Now, I can't say that this is true or untrue, but it wasn't uncommon for Darren to use that as like a threat of like, I'll pitch you out of the house. I'll Mm -hmm. kick you out of the house. And Nathan was also involved in like the he thought she should have been punished for being such a naughty little minx or whatever. But that was something I literally found at the very, very end because I was trying to find an update that said something in the, like somewhere in the fashion of like Angie finally got to go and see her son, right? No, this is what I found was that there were other agencies that were involved in exploitation, like the exploitation of a minor because of some sexting and naughty photos. So if you guys want to check that out, we'll put that link in the show notes as well. But it sounds like to me that, you know, and and I don't think that there's, I don't think that that it's uncommon or unheard of for parents to be like, I will kick you the fuck out of my house. Mm -hmm. Like, dude, it's I heard it from my parents. Like they said it to my brothers. They said it to me. Like, I think in a fit of anger, lots of things get said. Yeah. It doesn't make it okay. No. But that brings us to the end of the Becky Watts murder. Yes, it does. The end the end mm-hmm. of the murder so you guys check out those show notes um you can check out the um also if you go to like wikipedia or whatever i'm pretty sure that the safeguarding bristol link is there too but you can also find it in our show notes in the meantime don't be a lion shit bag don't watch 
dirty little girl porn. Don't oh, be a lying yeah. shitbag. Don't kill your step siblings. And please, please, please don't tear them apart with circular saws. Mm-hmm. And uh, stay, stay out, out of chalk lines. lines. Goodbye. Goodbye.